are listening to the Darkest Hour Podcast, the show that takes a loving look at horror films from the past and present and gives them a very thorough autopsy. Tonight, we are discussing a new-ish film. It is The Witch, subtitled A New England Folktale. Written and directed by Robert Eggers, and I have to say, spoiler alert, this is one of my favorite movies of the last 10 years. Um, if you don't already know, um, I am John Evans, and I am joined, as always, by my co-hosts Vikram Wheat and Michael T. Kuchak. Mike, how the hell are you tonight, sir? I'm fantastic. Thank you for asking, John. <laughs> and Vikram, how are you, my friend? As Mike said, I will never forget this. Uh, we went out for drinks after watching The Dark Knight all together, and the hostess took us to our tables, and she said, how are you gentlemen today? And Mike, you said, I am filled with the joy of life. Thank you. <laughs> so Mike uh, and John, I am filled with the joy of life this evening. Vic, does your cup runneth over? <laughs> it runneth over. <laughs> the silver cup? <laughs> Is it my father's silver cup? <laughs> oh, yeah, there it is. Holy cow. <laughs> Tying it in already. Right on, man. Well, uh, we will get to the Silver Cup, I'm sure. But traditionally on the show, when we start discussing a film, we kind of mention how it hit us the first time we saw it. So let's reach way back to 2016 when it actually hit theaters. Uh, Mike, what did you think? Uh, what was your uh, relationship with the movie when it hit the screen for the first time. I'm a big fan of A24, which released this film. I was watching their trailers. It was extraordinarily interesting to me. I'm like, oh boy, I can't wait. So the night before, I got some heavy drinking done. And the next day, hangover bedamned, I ran, ran, ran over to <laughs> the Arclight in Hollywood front row seats, drinking hand, because you can drink in the Arclight. I have a certain metric, and that is... If a movie can get me to say the words, what the fuck, out loud, then I count that film as a quality piece of horror work. And the Vich gave me one of those. One really good, what the fuck, loud enough that the other 20 or so people in the gigantic theater laughed at me. We're talking about the crow on the nipple scene. That was some hardcore shit, man. I've I've watched it, I want to say, about four or five times since because it's been very uh, available online and streaming purposes. Let's bless our merry gods for that, because, you know, mm -hmm. fuck, it's a great movie, man. Oh, yeah, that scene is all kinds of wrong. I finished watching this film for the first time about 10 hours ago. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell, man? <laughs> Um, so what's I, taking I, up all your time? Or do you have well, children or something, or a full time job? Don't you have time to watch horror movies anymore? Yeah, no, but um, <laughs> uh, no. I here's what I would tell you is that I I have sort of this movie is part of a trilogy of super successful independent. I don't want to say super successful because that's a, a maybe inflating it a bit, but critically acclaimed independent horror films that have come out recently. And so I would put this right in realm with the, the Babadook and it follows. And then mm -hmm. this came out. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And these were movies that 
again, had kind of the limited release. There's no stars. There's not really any names attached to it. But just on the strength of the execution, they were forced to get wide releases. And if you were a horror fan like we are, you ran right out and saw it. And so, I mean, I don't run right out to the movie theater to see anything anymore. But I made a point of seeing... Both It Follows, which obviously we've dissected pretty thoroughly, and also The Babadook. And I think The Babadook kind of fucked it up for me because I actively hate that movie. <laughs> what? What? Yes. Uh, I, uh, I you know what, guys? I am on Vic's side of this of the fence on this one. Go on, Vic. Holy cow. And so when it came to The Witch, uh, when it came out, and, and again, it was... You're, the the reaction was very much the same people who were cheering on the Babadook as the best thing since sliced bread in independent horror. I sort of went, well, I want to see what other people think. I'm not going to call a babysitter and cash in all these points with my wife to drag her out to see a horror movie because that's what, again, I made her watch It Follows and she checked out after 20 minutes and I had to pay a price for that. You so married I the wrong woman. I sure that's what I was getting into. <laughs> and John, while you have certainly been singing its praises from day one, I talked to a lot of other people who were like, well, I don't know. It's kind of boring. I know a lot of people who didn't finish it. It's not really a horror movie. Once you start to waffle and then all of a sudden, Get Out comes out and it's gone. And so this really was my impetus to say, okay, well, let's see what this uh, what this thing is actually all about. And I will say, I really enjoyed it. It is a if you'll forgive the term, a deliciously unsettling movie. <laughs> um, I'm curious to unpack it with you guys because I know you guys have seen it a lot more. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to dig into it with you guys and just sort of see what you guys are able to tease out of me in terms of my reaction because right now it's all very visceral uh, and I haven't had a lot of time to unpack a lot of my feelings about it. Do visceral you, reactions are always the best, yes. Do yes. you wish fuck, to live fuck, deliciously? Fuck is not is not incorrect, Mike. That it was that that's not a uh, that's not an incorrect way to describe it. Wouldst thou like the taste of butter? <laughs> Before we do that, I want to throw in one extra little tidbit that really did influence my opinion of this. We just went to a family reunion back on the East Coast in uh, the Poconos in Pennsylvania and then spent a couple of days in Colonial Williamsburg with my family. My, my parents live in, in Williamsburg. And so we went to Colonial Williamsburg where everybody dresses like the fucking people in The Witch. And then we took the kids to there is an actual there's a, a, a Native American village a mile and a half from the house where they have people in period garb and everything else. And then they have the Susan Constant and the Godspeed, these sort of model ships that, of the, the colonists that came to Jamestown. But then they have a model of the, I mean, and when I say model, I mean like a life-size version of the Jamestown fort that is mm-hmm. occupied by people that look like and sound, well, they don't sound like because they don't have the accent quite as good as these people. But Everything looked exactly like this, down to the fires and the smoke coming out of the chimneys and the, I mean, the nails that he used to nail the children up in the barn and that sort of thing. It was one of the details that I noticed because I literally watched a guy, a a blacksmith making nails Mm -hmm. uh, at Jamestown five days ago. So, Well, to, um, to the best of my knowledge, our director on this film came out of production design and brought his expertise to the production in the sense that the, uh, the farm and everything else was built with tools that are period 
correct with materials that are period correct. And very interestingly enough, uh, the music is created by instruments primarily that are period correct. Uh, he really put the actual molecules, the nails into the wood in terms of creating the world that we see on the screen. It's very rare that you'll find a horror, a movie at all, but a horror movie specifically that will put in that much time and effort in terms of telling its story. The more I find out about this movie, the more I love it. Oh, absolutely. I can tell you, as far as the various historical societies in James City County are concerned, he fucking nailed it. Mm-hmm. No pun intended. Dude. Uh, Nails. Well, yeah. He, uh, he's one of those rare filmmakers who you look at his IMDb and it's six art director credits, eight costume designer credits, 15 production designer credits. Like, yeah, he definitely has a background in the trades and in the departments uh, that realize the visuals of a film. The visuals certainly show up on the screen in this movie. And, And as you guys alluded to, yeah, everything is period authentic and... I think you you sense that when you're watching the film. There's a tremendous authenticity to this film. It's so persuasive. It's so convincing. You're transported into the era that the movie, that the story takes place in. And that really makes very limited actual, like, what happens. Like, so much is left to your imagination or it's filling in between the blanks. But you're you're so with this film, you're so buying everything that you really don't need to see as much because you, you, you know that those things happened. You feel that all of this is happening in and around the story and we're just getting these little glimpses of it. So I saw the movie pretty much the same way that Mike did. You know, hearing the talk... When I, like, I'm not totally plugged into Fangoria or, you know, Bloody Disgusting or however people find out what what's coming in the, down the pipeline in terms of the genre. Like, I something has to really get some serious buzz for me to be aware of it. And, you know, I'm not proud of that, but um, that's just kind of the way it is. And, and these three films, the ones that you guys, that Vic mentioned, uh, you know, The Babadook, it follows and the witch like th- those are the sort of the holy or the unholy trinity of horror in the last several years and we will definitely talk about the babadook at some point cuz i watched it you and i the three of us were talking about reviewing the show or discussing the sh- the film on this show and so I-, I i watched it recently and i still don't particularly like it so We'll we'll get into it at some point. So, where do we start with this movie? Holy shit. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, why, why don't you talk about how you saw it the first time okay. and what your reactions were? Yeah, um, I, I was spellbound by it. I was just completely blown away, and it was something that I only it follows recently. And before that, I mean, if you want to go back another 10 years, it was The Descent, where I'm like, I, yes. need, I need to see this again this week. Like, I am not that kind of guy. I don't watch movies in the theater a bunch of times. I mean, I'm not a teenager. But, like, these films, the ones, you know, that that make that, have that impact on you, you're like, no, I I need to go see that again. And, in fact, in this case, I went and read the script in between so that I could pick up more of the nuances of the dialogue that I didn't necessarily get uh, the first time because, you know, they're speaking old English here, for God's Mm -hmm. sake, and... A lot Ye oldie English in a very <laughs> real way. Yeah. Right, right. So having read the script really helped me uh, soak up all any detail that I didn't get the first time. This tremendously 
almost Shakespearean dialogue that we we have in this film is very inflected with the the religion of the time and the sort of biblical, often literal uh, quoting of scripture that occurs and sort of the translation of scripture by our, you know, this is interesting. I was going to say protagonist, but this is, this is truly a film that, yeah, we have a protagonist, which would be the daughter, I believe, Thomason, but the sort of nominal head of the family, initial driver of the plot is a guy named William, whose family he's removed from a, <laughs> apparently very typical Puritan settlement because they're not hardcore enough is how I right. interpreted yep. it. Oh, oh, the irony, the irony of that scenario that William decides that the Puritan settlement isn't hardcore Christian enough for the religion that he practices. And thus he takes his family into the wilderness and subjects them to the ministries of the witch and Satanism. Oh, the irony, the delicious bite of that apple. But in terms of the language itself, I loved how these characters speak. It plugs directly into the overall approach of authenticity that we find in this film. You know, the the set building and the costumes and everything else comes down to the actual words that the characters speak. It's very much, like you said, the subtitle is a New England, what is it again? New England folklore. It is actually a New England folktale. Yeah, exactly. So it's this is the backstory of every other horror movie that's ever been based off of a old witch used to live here, a ghost used to live here, da 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 da. This is the progenitor of all of them. You buy in within the first few minutes, but it's a lot like reading Shakespeare. If you pick up a copy of Hamlet, the first act or so is a little rough because you're kind of getting your head around it. But then by the time you get about halfway through, you're just kind of reading it like you would read anything else. You get into the groove of it, and that's not something that everyone can pull off. A lot of the criticism of this film was against the language. People didn't understand what they were talking about. And also the pacing, which was another thing that if you actually, uh, very similar to The Shining. The Shining is very frequently considered to be a slow burn film. But if you actually look at the beats that occur within that movie, The Shining, I mean, on a timeline, when they arrive, when Danny sees the girls for the first time, when the first time that we see Jack Torrance being weird, it's actually not that deep into the movie. We're talking about like eight minutes, 15 minutes, X, Y, Z. And very similarly, we get this opening scene in the Vivitch, and that's the last piece of normalcy that we get because when we cut to the their little wagon going off into the wilderness, that's like maybe five minutes into the movie and we get this long strain off of my violin to let you know that this is a terrible thing this is creepy these people are fucked and the beat in which the baby disappears in thomason that's not that deep into the movie i would say maximum 10 or 15 minutes not even know? not even 15 yeah yeah, I think yeah you're, you're closer exactly. to 10 like, for sure my point is that The Vivitch is a long, slow burn of a film only if you're applying it to YouTube standards or Vine standards. Oh, yeah. You see what I mean? I, I yeah, totally it, agree. It, I, I don't consider it, objectively any longours or there's no stretches of this film where I'm like, get on with it. I, I don't well, feel that way. 
Well, one of the things that I find interesting, because I do think the this ties directly into the language, is that in that opening scene, William is accused of, the reason they're cast out is for prideful conceit. And we never find out why they got cast out. What a strange turn of phrase that is. And I actually, just to get my head around it, I looked it up. The definition of conceit is excessive pride in oneself. So it's almost a redundant turn of phrase. But if you remember at the near the end, when the children are locked up and he sort of breaks down and confesses that his sin is pride, that he's infected with pride and that the, the Lord should take him and spare his children, that moment really made me wonder what did happen in the two weeks preceding the beginning of this film. It kicks off with this air of strange mystery about these people and what's going on that does carry it through. Again, you're right that in, within 10 minutes you get there to a place where the, the story really kicks off. But I do think that the language is part of it. There's a mystery in just in the words that they use, uh, even in that opening scene. We're telling the audience that this dude, this guy, William, is too hardcore Christian for the Puritans. Yes. For the Puritans. Like, they can't tolerate having this guy around their guy, throw him out into the wilderness, which in all likelihood is certain death. Prideful conceit, we have to imagine that he is more religious than the people. Yeah, he, he's aspiring to higher goals than the people around him. Either that or he's just too much of a fucking nut. When The first time that I saw this movie, my re initial read was he was such a super hardcore guy that he was going to be torturing his family with crazy shit. And then, that's not the case. It, yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. This when you take him out into the wilderness and we see him interacting with his kids and his wife, he's a wonderful guy. He's a good dude. You you almost wonder if he's too much of the pure Christian, and they were willing to kind of you know, make some uh, you know choices that he didn't agree with, and he got loud about it. But at the same time, he's not without sin himself. It's a fascinating movie that's in a lot of ways about Christianity and the choices that this man makes that ultimately dooms his family. Well, that is bringing up one of the most fascinating aspects of the family dynamics and the role of their religion in what happens to them. And I think mm. there's a very strong correlation between the fate of each of these characters, decisions that they make, and what happens to them in the course of the movie is connected to this idea that he forces upon them, primarily the children I'm speaking of, but mm -hmm. that concept that you are already evil. Original sin. Yeah, yeah. Original sin. Yeah, and yeah. his interpretation of that is fantastically harsh. And it, it basically makes these kids feel like, you know, it's going to be a miracle if they're, they don't go to the devil, you know, more right. or less. And that's kind of what happens to both of them. You know, the, the, the mm -hmm. boy, Caleb, and of course, Thomason feel, in my opinion, railroaded into the fates that they wind up uh, having is based on their sense of guilt and shame and not knowing how to deal with their natural feelings that may not have a natural avenue to pursue. And I'm referring to Caleb, you know, sort of ogling his sister and the kind of inappropriate sexual tension between them because there's no fucking, you know, other people around is, is oh, my guys. interpretation of that. 
we could spend three hours just on the sexual aspects of this entire film. Exactly. But yeah, exactly. absolutely. <laughs> Religion is one grad paper. The sexuality is another grad paper. Oh, there's like you 18 know, grad papers in this movie, which, which is the mark of a fine film. <laughs> but, but, but the I point that I'm making... Want to take just a second. I have in front of me the actual quote when the father and son are setting the traps and uh, William says to Caleb, canst thou tell me what thy corrupt nature is? And Caleb replies, my corrupt nature is empty of grace, bent unto sin, only unto sin, and that continually. And I think that, not to get off on too much of a tangent, but one of the things that I find enormously frustrating about a large segment of the population of our country, I think comes directly from this idea, and it stems directly from this sort of Puritan history of this country, and that is that your nature, your your impulses towards sex and sexuality are evil and they're wrong and you're and you should feel guilty about them and you should and the damage that that has done the, the world over is just incalculable. And so the, this movie actually visualizes that in a, in a certain way or makes that I mean, I would not for the for the life of me, I would not contend that this is actually in any way a film commenting on modern ideas of sexuality or something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, um, I agree with that, yeah. But I also, I felt myself getting angry watching it, thinking that when I heard that th those kinds of words, my corrupt nature is, is empty of grace, bent unto sin, only unto sin, and that continually, that's to this day those ideas are hammered into children just like Caleb. And it, the damage it does is extraordinary. And look, it does it does extraordinary damage to the kids in this movie. Well, yeah, why are you oh, yeah. saying that it's not relevant? I mean, I think that you just rightly undercut what you just said, which is people don't make movies in 2015, you know, with no bearing whatsoever on today and on modern life. I think that it's absolutely intentional that they're commenting by some remove by commenting on the 1600s version of Christianity, but I think they're still commenting on what we are telling our kids today and what religion, what the, the impact of religion today. I mean, you, you would agree with that, wouldn't you? When I was a kid, I went to Catholic school, and I eventually turned away from that because I announced the idea as a whole of original sin in any of its forms any form. I refuse to accept the idea that you are bad because of who you are in any way. And I think that that applies even to the grief that Thomason gets from her mom. You know, that she starts getting a hard time from her mother just purely because she's a teenage girl. She's, uh, oh, oh, she's wrong. She's going to do this. She's going to do that. She's going to become a witch. She's going to do this. Just purely because of who she is. Well, yeah, she, and, the mama uh, accuses her more or less of slutting around because, right, yeah, because she's yeah, easy yeah. on the eyes as an attractive teenage girl. Basically. Exactly. And there's also this weird, skeezy undertone of sexual competition that she's, oh, there is a younger, hotter girl around, and I don't like that, so she has to go away. She actively talks about handing her off to some farmer that they barely know <laughs> to be a servant just to get her out, out of her sight. And the whole thing with the silver cup, it's just a lever to make that happen, really, or just another weapon to use against her. In any situation in which you're telling a child or an adult 
that they're bad purely because of who they are, what wound they came out of, is not only absurd, but it's also, like Vic said, extraordinarily harmful. And I think that this film definitely puts a finger right on that open tooth wound. No, no doubt, no doubt. But, you know, it's interesting that many films of this basic formula, the seduction of evil, you might call it, where why does a character choose, ultimately, to go down the dark road? Why are they liberated by it? Why is it their answer to their problems? And in this film, it's funny that, like, in no way at any point do we really feel Thomason. She might as well be <laughs> a cattle being forced down the chute to be clubbed in the head by evil. Like, she is oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely shoved to the point where she's like, all right, fine, I'll be fucking evil then. You know, like, anything right. to get me out of the, the nightmare that I've been living in. And you know what? Hey, it does feel good to be free and floating 30 yards above the fucking forest floor right now. That ending scene in which uh, she literally flies. She's literally shorn of her clothes. She yanks off her clothes and she flies into the air. That, that's freedom on every visceral level that you can imagine. And all you have to do is sell your soul to Satan. Every minute of narrative that comes before that moment is basically the story of how someone turns to the dark side. The metaphor but, more how instead of being you know, a choice. Really, the metaphor seems to be how we can force people into becoming uh, our antagonists. If you don't want me to be evil and sell my soul to Satan, then don't be such a pack of fucking assholes about yeah. it. And, and you know, telling me I'm evil, it's, like, day yeah. in and day, day out. Now, all day you tell me that I'm evil, then you're shitty to me, and then eventually when the devil shows up and is like, do you want a pretty dress? Do you want you to mutter? Would, wouldst thou like to live life deliciously? It's like, yes! <laughs> Absolutely. This is one of those things that I probably need to watch the movie a couple of times to really unpack and, and figure out how I feel about this. You gotta soak it up, Vic. It's, it's you gotta goat, soak I, it up. It's the goat, Vic. But I, Black yeah. Philip. But I, Black Philip. Is the movie reinforcing the idea that giving in to your own sexuality is the same as giving in to the devil? One of the things that I was struck by is the nature of sort of witchcraft and the stories that we tell about witchcraft. And again, this is all based on traditional folklore. So there's not, none of this is made up. It all involves women dancing naked around a fire and sort of oh, orgiastic, uh, you know, orgasmic things. And I'm watching these women writhe in front of it and thinking, well, yes, like we equate, they equate when this sort of puritanical world, we equate naked women writhing in pleasure with, evil that they've sold their souls to the devil if they're right. enjoying their bodies if they're enjoying their nudity if these things are there and so at i'm not sure how i feel about the end because you're right it is this feeling of enormous freedom that she's cast off the shackles of this insane religious ideals that are sort of forced upon her and is literally lifted up into the sky in her nudity and her freedom. But she's done so by literally selling her soul to the devil. And is that, yeah, she, she's now I'm a slave sure about that. Yeah. Like, she, she's now a slave to Satan. Yeah. Is this a positive or negative? Is it just, how does, how do you guys feel about what this says? If you're a woman who watches this, how do you walk away from this feeling about, 
your body, your sexuality, your, uh, you know, if you, again, if you were, if you were 16 or 18, what do you think this means? What does that say to you? I would say that first off, this film does not have to give us a prescriptive handbook for how to be a woman. I, I don't think that like the film needs to say, oh, well, you know, this is what you should do and this is what you shouldn't do. Like, I feel that it's presenting bad options all around and it's a sad story. I definitely don't view it as um, where young women are supposed to walk out of the movie being like, I'm going to pledge my soul to Satan. Yeah. Yeah. I I do. Especially because the, the witch that haunts them is such a horrible monster. Except for the scene where she's portrayed by a Victoria's secret model. Then she transforms herself into the apple, you know, to be bitten. But even then, it becomes a skeezy, you know, uh, age-inappropriate situation. But well, it's like, What a wonderful you know, scene. I mean, if we want to just digress yeah, briefly to talk about that scene. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It, I, I, that's straight out of Disney, man. That's yeah. fairy tale shit. That scene is a, a showstopper. And it also ties in this... We talk sometimes on this show about like the Lovecraftian or the more insidious aspects of the universe being in the know and using that knowledge against you. The idea that he claimed to have gone out looking for apples, it doesn't seem a coincidence to me that as if she were overhearing all of their conversations, that she would evilly taunt them with the idea of him regurgitating an apple. I think that that sort of, the cruelty of that, it's something we've talked about with Italian horror, it's just mm-hmm. the idea that it knows your secrets and your lies, and it will it will taunt you and toy with you accordingly, in a, in a tailored and specific way. That's what I love yeah. about the apple. And ties directly into their religion with uh, the Adam and Eve story. Sure, The lure of the apple. I don't, yeah, I don't yeah, even this... think that's, that benefits it, though. Like, if, if you yeah. really wanted to read it as the apple is knowledge or something, I mean, that's fine. But I think, like, just on a character basis, the specificity of that is so cruel mm-hmm. to him personally on a psychological level. It's, it's more like Snow White. It's, it's the bite of the poisoned apple. It's like, you know, using this shiny, delicious fruit as a metaphor for the lure of this, this cheese in the trap. Well, because no well, crops grow there. Well, and I think it's just in general, I feel like Eggers inserts a lot of biblical imagery into it. I mean, the silver oh, of course. Fits, it fits in exactly the same place where it's like, look, like you can, you know, we could, we could talk for an hour about, you know, the silver cup. Is it the, you know, the Holy grail, the, you know, is it silver because of the 30 pieces of silver? Like what's the, is that, what did he get for? Did he get 30 pieces of silver for it? Like, you know, there's, yeah. I feel like there's lots of imagery and ideas and, and verbiage like that ties into the religious nature of this. And yeah, the also- storytelling plugs into their own beliefs. The building is, is pretty specific, the language is pretty specific, and so is the mythology. It's very pretty specific. It, it draws on their own beliefs in order to create the framework of its own narrative. And it makes the movie stand out from It Follows in the Babadook in a very specific way. I mean, this this is a throwback. The themes and ideas and a lot of the stuff that we're talking about, well, I mean, that's not actually true because obviously the sexuality is, a, a, I think, a strong idea. In, in, so so but, long as hu- humanity has been around, the sexual aspects are never going to change or go away. Yeah. <laughs> but, it's, 
but the the fear of the devil, the fear of you know evil taking over because of one wrong word or one wrong misdeed. I mean, these are I think these are things that connected more when you made The Exorcist than they typically would now. But that's the thing, though, is Regan doesn't do anything to deserve what lands on her head. More about you know, the she, in that case, as you know. Yeah, she she, I mean, she fucks around with the Ouija board like any other fucking preteen in the entire world. Who gives a shit? Yeah, the Ouija board, in Regan's case, is more of a symptom of an oncoming disease than anything else. Well, what's uh, funny is with, that this film has a, a, a nuclear family and none of the other films that you're you're mentioning have a nuclear family. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. It's like evil literally destroys a good religious nuclear family <laughs> that is uh, trying to adhere to the, the American potential, which is to go on to the wilderness and hack a life out yeah, for yourself. Exactly. You know? Like these other films are somehow like not intentionally probably – but they're suggesting that the flaw in the family, the, the incompleteness of the family, has something to do with the misfortune that they invite in, into the, you know, the neediness of the, of the household. And, and this movie is absolutely running counter to that, where they appear to have everything that they need, and they go out with the hubris of we will be self-sufficient and we need nothing else and we have all that we have and we will be safe. We will keep each other safe. And then that is chipped away relentlessly. The idea that God will take care of us is fine. But we are talking about an era of human experience in which you are literally one bad crop away from death for you and your entire family. This film plugs into the Mike Kuchak theorem of the best horror is built on drama. If you were to take away the the haunting, the the BC, the witch in this scenario, you would still have a movie of this family that have been cast out and they are hacking their way out of the wilderness. And then on top of that, you introduce a supernatural element, and that's what makes it a horror film. And actually. I like the idea of this movie as like the family goes out into the woods and it becomes like a like a sci-fi made for TV movie where it's just a really violent goat. <laughs> I would I feel like I would watch that movie. <laughs> Even though Thomason is the one who's under a microscope because she is a teenage girl and thereby is uh, a threat to their morality just by being who she is. It's the twins who are the more given to Black Phillip and yes. the more obnoxious throughout the entire movie. One of the criticisms of Babadook is that the kid is very obnoxious. Well, no shit. That was an artistic choice. You're supposed to be on the same side as the mom who's going insane and thinking about killing her kid. And you have to feel the internal horror of what it is to come to a place where it's like, I should kill my son. The twins in the Vivich are just so atrocious. These two kids, they're insane. That's they're crazy. Not... And it's... And they're the tw- they're, and they're the two kids who go to literally they're the ones who get swayed by the devil first. If exactly. we're going to say that Black Philip Black Philip is the representation of the devil. Well, on of course the we're farm. saying that. Of course we're saying that. I mean, I think that's yeah. that's yeah. very clear that that the I don't know if you call it irony, but yeah, the, the truth is that under their everyone's noses, Black Philip has been working on on the twins this this whole time. Yeah. And I would say one of the sharpest, most multi-layered moments in the entire movie is Caleb's death when he 
is up there yeah. and he's just he, he shows up and he's, he's naked interestingly enough just like thomason is at the very end uh apparently if you hang out with the devil the devil doesn't like you wearing clothes so he shows up well, n- nudity is evil I mean, again, yeah, that's part of what yeah, I was talking about. Precisely. It's an eschewing of their morality. So he shows up and he's naked. And he's tasted of the apple. He's given himself over to sin. But unlike Thomason, who draws power from it at the end of it, he's actually sickened to death by the uh, exposure to nudity and sin. The family is losing their minds. Oh, my God, he's dying. And he has this religious revelation and it's hard to say if, if it's a vision that's been given to him falsely as a way to torment him and the family, or if in that moment, as he's passing on to the great, you know, the undiscovered country, if he actually does have a true religious revelation. Because in this world, if we're going to say that they're Satan, then thereby there must be a God. You know? That's one of the great marks of, a, no. of, a, of an amazing film, is that it no. has that ambiguity there read either interpretation into that and i think that's it's why that scene is so incredibly powerful is that you're just watching this and you're trying to figure out what this kid is experiencing because we're not sharing his experience we are on the outside we are just watching the ramifications of it on his dying body and it's incredibly powerful whatever it is and I, I, I definitely think that you're right. There's, there's reason to wonder if that is his absolution or his release or his escape, or is it simply the cruelest jest of all by the witch? Perhaps. I'm a little bit of an optimist. I lean toward the former only because, you know, in The Exorcist, it's once you get beyond the idea that, it's, that the problem with Regan is psychological in nature if you go, okay, this is a demon, there's, this is a devil, then, and you buy into that mythology, then thereby there must be an equal and opposite or non-equal and opposite force. There has to be a god, and, there, and that power is real, and you can tap into it. Well, I believe that and that's very, truly that's the optimistic, inherently, if, if you're buying into Christian mythology, like, yes, if it is the devil... Ergo, there must be a God. And Caleb sees Christ, and Thomason goes to Satan. But both of them are pushed so hard, and they're equal in opposite ways. It's, it's weird how that works out at the end of this film. The wonderful thing about that film, or uh, that scene, I should say, is when Caleb is having this very pure moment. The twins pollute it with their writhing and their shrieking and everything else, that there's a 5% chance that it might be real, but there's a 95% chance that they're putting on the kind of bullshit shows that got people hung and burned at the stake in Salem. I absolutely think, I, I'm not even, I, if it, I think it's 99% that they're mm-hmm. faking it. Because mm-hmm. I noticed when I was watching it, the language that they pick up and start repeating, they pick up and start repeating after Caleb says it. Let me posit this. Caleb might be having a purely true religious moment, ironically enough, after he's been polluted by an encounter with the witch out in the woods. I'm just going to say, as a true fan and devotee of the, the cinema of Michael Bay and Mick G, I do not care. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lead-in. That's a lead-in. I find this whole thing very upsetting. 
there was a real lack of boobs in this movie, except for the scene with the crow. I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with all this. Was that like the taste of butter? I think she said, uh, yeah. she said, see the world. But I mean, we're still talking about freedom. He's offering her freedom in the same way that Lucifer offers Eve freedom via knowledge. Do you want to know? He's not talking about E equals MC squared. And he's talking about just knowledge of experience of the world. God would rather keep you in this little terrarium where very well kept taken care of, but there's zero personal agency. You're basically his pet. And if you're allowed, if you escape the terrarium and you get to know the world, then you are now bad. You're cast out and you're punished and original sin. And you have to basically spend the rest of your life saying sorry for getting out of the terrarium. Vic, did, did you have any religious background at all? My stepmother's a Quaker, and so that was the, the bulk of my religious education was uh, a number of Sundays at Quaker Church. I actually went to a Quaker summer camp for most of my childhood, uh, which I loved enormously. They're yeah. almost all very nice people. I recall in one of our uh, Friday the 13th podcasts, you, you had discussed going off to the summer camp for the first time, and you were very horrified by the experience. Was that a well, Quaker the, the, thing? The, or? The, there, was, there was a Quaker camp, but it was, it was just the fact that they dropped me off, uh, you know, when they were like, Tarps stretched over wood, and they and loaded mm-hmm. with like wooden bunk beds underneath it. And they were like, "Here yeah. you go." <laughs> to, to be fair, now as a father, I can understand why my parents were like, "Looks good to me." <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, I, I, I have two whole months where I get to fuck your mother whenever I want. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We're gonna go wine tasting, and we're gonna go watch movies, and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Wouldst thou like to live deliciously? I'm looking at the script, actually. I have it right in front of me. Incredible lines. Incredible fucking lines. God damn, dude. Indeed. Oh, man. And the funny thing about that is the lures that Satan presents to Thomason are so simple. The, The idea being that if you tear down someone's life completely, then you can go, do you want to wear a pretty dress? Do you want to eat butter? Do you want to just not fuck with this bullshit anymore? This is the way that you should go. And how could and, you say no to those things, living yeah, the life exactly. that she's had? So much easier in the 1600s. I mean, yeah. now that, like you want, you want how many Instagram followers? Like, <laughs> <laughs> if Satan were to offer that to anybody in our contemporary society, it would be ludicrous. It's like, do you want a dress? Do you want butter? It's like, no, nah, it's like 20 bucks away. <laughs> but the thing too about this movie is we see a witch several times before Thomason goes to the dark side and she's literally a monster. She murders a child and grinds his blood and flesh up into a paste and later she shows up basically like a, a creature in a goat pen. Yeah, that's like a monster reveal. All the times that we see a witch before Thomason is offered this contract is this is her end result. And uh, I always say that the witch is uh, on par with Lords of Salem in terms of making witches really scary monsters again. That's the fourth yeah. most important horror film of the last 10. Oh, no, no, it isn't. There, there are certain monsters that have figured into our folklore that kind of lost their frightening power giants 
no one's really scared of Giants anymore until you watch Attack on Titan. And it's like, oh shit, Giants are scary again. And witches, thanks to Lord of Salem and the Vivich, are again, they're scary monsters on par with a vampire, a werewolf, and XYZ. And I think that that's, that has its own power within it. And we're presented with this, this monstrous creature of evil who steals a baby and murders it. And that is ultimately at the end of the movie, it's like, Thomason, do you want to become one of these? And she's like, fuck yeah. Because well, again, the, I mean, because, what, what choice does she have? I mean, yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah, but I mean, that's to my mind, the true power of the lure of evil. I, I'm offering you something that is going to fucking suck. And it just sucks less than what you've got in hand. It becomes literally the lesser of two evils. Yeah, but I wouldn't get hung up on what the witch that we see looks like. I mean, again, for me, I don't think that that means Thomason is going to look like that old lady, like, in a week. You know, like, I think that for all we know, that that witch is you know, has been living in the, in the forest, partying it up for 45 years, you know, for better or for worse. It, that's not like step two after she signs her name in the book as she becomes that misshapen thing. Who knows whether he's going to deliver on any of these promises that Black Phillip makes, would you like to see the world, etc. And very likely not, you would think. I mean, if you're basing this on a traditional view of the devil and his tendency to keep his promises... But it's definitely interesting that all of this results in this weirdly, it's a complex moment as she's laughing and you feel, I think it's impossible not to feel a thrill of exaltation for her and with her where she's being released from this horrible conflict that between her father's beliefs and her father's mm. will and the the other side. And now that she's just on the other side and the conflict is over, it's tremendously liberating on some level. But there's a definitely an undercurrent of horror in that moment as well that I feel. Like when mm. she's at that very end, there's like there's also the just like there's a sickening quality of it that she's but she's going insane and it's the liberation of the mad. Hmm. I am vastly more frightened by situations that are corrupting than just killing you. Movies in which, you know, a dude shows up with a knife and stabs you in the head or a monster shows up and bites you and now you're dead. Those things are, you know, they're fun to watch. What I do find to be horrific is corruption. And I think that earlier it touched on Lovecraftian storytelling. I think that that's what we're talking about here. She's not bad. She's just a person. And she gets corrupted. She sells her soul to Satan at the end of it and becomes a witch. And there, there's a part of it that's like, God damn it, why did the world create this candle shoot yeah. that shoved her in that direction? The true evil is in the hammer at the end of the cattle shoot. It's cattle shoot itself. Well, it's so easy to tell the stupid, like, I sold my soul to the devil to be a rock star or to be eternally young or all I had to do is murder some people and I get everything I ever wanted. Like, there's no 
complexity to that. There's no real conflict to it because it's just mm-hmm. such an obvious quid pro quo. This is so much more compelling. Well, again, I wonder too, I mean, just to go back a little bit to what I was saying before about the way this relates to women and, and femininity and, and uh, how that relates to sexuality and everything else. I mean, all the women, all the all the people who seem to sell their soul to the devil, at least traditionally, are women. And when you talk, when you when you talk about this scene and use terms like liberation, that strikes a very powerful chord in me. When I look at a you know a young woman coming of age in a society that subjugates women and denies them freedom and and has her i mean you know look we spend a lot of time talking about caleb you know not being not having anything to look at except uh, his you know his his older sister's uh, bosom now and then she's in very much the same situation being offered is freedom from a very you know misogynistic male dominated culture where they were going to sell her to a fucking farmer Caleb is looking at his sister's boobs not because he is a perv from day one, as the original sin might tell you, but only because they're the only boobs to look at when you're 12 or 13 or wherever he is. And he feels you know, tremendous idea. guilt, like crippling yeah. guilt over that. If you're 12 or 13 and you're a boy, you're going to look at boobs and have the only two boobs that you have in the entire world are your sisters. You're going to look at them and you're going to be horrified at the fact that you're doing that. You're you're, you're knowing that you're going straight to hell for it. I want to interrupt for just one second because I want to throw this out there. You've articulated something that's in the back of my head because you know who you're describing is Joshua fucking Duggar. Who's Joshua the fucking Duggar? The the kid with the 18, uh, 18 kids and counting who confessed to looking at his sister's boobs uh, when she was asleep. No? Yeah. Nothing? Uh, I know what you're talking about. I'm sorry, Vic. Super, uh, you know, I'm sorry, it was a super... While you're watching reality it's shows and football, I'm watching horror movies. So I have... Uh, <laughs> I work in reality television, so this is the sort of... This is kind of <laughs> but no, but I, this really is like this is a super religious household. The reason they have 18 kids is because they don't believe in birth control and everything else. Mm. Nobody gets to date and they wind up, especially if you're one of the older kids, which he was, you spend your life taking care of all the younger kids. And so you have no social life. You have no anything else. And so when this kid hit puberty, he was caught in the middle of the night, you know, looking at his sister's boobs, which is, again, I, I don't want to say I'm justifying that behavior or saying mm-hmm. that, that I, I'm not saying that's okay. I'm not trying to, to excuse right. it. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it is, a, it is a real world example of almost exactly what's happening in this movie. This is someone who's been told from day one that his impulses are evil and he's mm-hmm. been given, you know, sheltered from, from the world in any way where if he was just, you know, if this was a kid in a, in a eighth grade high school playing truth or dare, he would have a much healthier way to express these ideas. As a sidebar, let's talk about the mom. Mm. There, there is an undercurrent of her hatred of Thomason, of sexual jealousy in a way. The idea that there is a younger, more attractive woman amongst these males, and that is you know, competition in some way. Even though it's absurd, but there's some string that's pulling out the back of her head that's telling her, I have to put this girl somewhere else. Yeah, it's horrifying the moments where she accuses Thomason of coming on to the father. And it's like, what are you talking about? If we have 
people who are going through a sexual change within a group of other people is your family members, then it's going to get real weird, real fucking fast in a way that you wouldn't find uh, if they had stayed in that fucking in that little fucking the plantation. Fort. No. Yeah, the plantation. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah, very it's unhealthy so- to isolate people this this completely. You know, we were talking about The Shining. When you limit the world down to just that, real fat. Get out of proportion. Oh, the creepy woman in the bathtub, the bathtub starts to look pretty enticing. Yeah. <laughs> Let me throw this past you guys. We spent four hours talking about It Follows and the fact that those characters going through a sexual transformation that exists within all of humanity at a certain age. Now take those characters and put them on a little farm with a supernatural element involved, you know? Society was formed for a reason. We we went beyond the four people in a cave real quick. For mm-hmm. a, you know, that goes back many thousands of years and this family flies in the face of that. And that kind of get, maybe gets back to his pride or his hubris or the exactly. things that he exactly admits. Yeah, that he admits to. All of the things that he cops to being guilty of, I think it revolves around him basically saying, "I can create my own version of God's world, and here all will be well, and because I know how it's supposed to be. And everything, mm-hmm. like the very environment, nature, the crops, everything conspires against him and to prove yeah, him wrong. There's a little bit of an extra edge on the mother character. There's a 75% chance that she's just kind of a pill, but there's 25% chance that she might have an element of, of mental illness going on because her behavior is way more extreme than ironically Thomason's. You know, because souls are sold to the devil because he wants to get traps so that they can trap some animals and get the fur and make some money for the family. And rather than have that conversation with his wife, he instead goes behind her back and sells it and tries to pretend that the cup was just kind of sort of lost in this very fuzzy thinking idea that she would not notice that suddenly they have traps and that animal furs are being sold and they now have money. Well, you can blame you know? her for that 100%. I, or... I'm, blaming her. I'm, yeah. blaming, I'm blaming him because I, in, in a mentally healthy and morally healthy relationship, he would just kind of have that conversation with her and be like, hey, listen. But the point that I'm making is that that might be more his pride than her being a a lunatic as much as we see shades of her being uh, you know a freak we don't really get a lot of that until her fucking kid just disappeared you're absolutely right about that she doesn't go off the deep end until her baby disappears but then it's like how can we blame anybody for extreme behavior when their baby disappears of course she's gonna act extreme and i really i believe that the reason that he doesn't tell her about the cup is not so much that he's legitimately and rightfully intimidated by his lunatic wife so much Mm. as he has too much pride to have that, that, that it's come to that. He's not able to provide for the family. Yes. Yeah. 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 Oh, 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 that's good. Yeah. You're right. Very frankly, in my personal interpretation of this film, the mother is not that important of a character, you know, rightfully, wrongfully, but just by the design of the film and the guy, 
who is pushing this movie is William. It really has to do so much with his choices and the reality that he's imposing on his children. All of this, the witch is fucking, and the devil is fucking with him. However, she very much is the antagonist of the uh, of the film for the great length of it because the witch is very much off camera, and that's one of the gray areas of this film is we don't know if the mother is like a psycho bitch or if she is just being rationally reactive to a evil supernatural force. Well, she uh, certainly and, is and, opposed to Thomason. She's an antagonist for Thomason to a weird and skeezy degree. And that's what puts me on side of Team Thomason versus Mom. Oh, of course. You know, but I, I, I'm just saying I, the movie's I, I think, not that interested in her. I don't think the movie is that interested oh, in the mom. Mom is a source of a lot of the conflict when the witch isn't directly involved. But you we know, don't I, have I, any I, insight she, into her psychology, do we? I mean, we we have so much a deeper understanding of what drives William or Caleb or, you know, Thomason. Well, well, that's what makes Mom as scary as the witch is we don't have access to her psychology. Because we were privy to the scene in which the baby disappeared, we know that it was a supernatural thing and that Thomason is innocent. So when Mom is starting to accuse Thomason of crazy shit, Yet we're on Thomason's side, where it's like this woman is unhinged. I typically turn to uh, Anthony Lane for good uh, of the New Yorker for good in-depth criticism. And so after watching this, and I just wanted to have a little bit of, of perspective, I wanted somebody else's take on it. And what I found really fascinating is that Anthony Lane presents much of the much of the supernatural aspects of it, but in particular the scene where the, the with the crow, not just with the crow, but the whole scene that the mother wakes up and finds the two children, you know, alive, and it's a wonderfully creepy scene. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you get the cutaway to the crow actually at her at her breast where she thinks it's the baby. Um, he presented the idea that that whole scene was a hallucination, and that perhaps the whole you know, the, the supernatural elements of the film might have just been, are these the delusions of the devout, basically, um, which I found enormously frustrating because this, I think, is what the the highbrow critics, when they are trying to justify liking a horror film. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> is it like, you know, oh, but like, you know, it's all psychological. I mean, this is one of the things that drives me nuts about the Babadook mm-hmm. is like, yeah. oh, yeah, it's all just a metaphor for what's going on in her head and whatever else. And this movie, I, coming out of it, I sort of went, like, there is no ambiguity about that. Like, no. it's, she is hallucinating the children, but the crow is what's actually happening, especially the way that it's cut and it's juxtaposed and everything right. else. So yeah, her, and the blood that we see later. Is, her journey is a journey into madness that stems from the loss of her children, but all of it, every bit of it seems to be manipulated by the witch specifically to bring Thomason into the fold. I don't even think that she's, I mean, there, there's probably some extra pleasure in tearing down a, a, such a righteous and devout person as William. And I wonder if, you know, he is set up as someone who seems to believe so much in the gospel that he doesn't even get to stay in this crazy Puritan plantation town. Her journey, everything that's happening to her, she's a little bit crazy, but this does seem to me that this whole movie unfolds according to the devil's plan and lands exactly where the devil planned it to go. He also gets the twins. The twins are the first ones to openly affect a relationship with Black Philip. 
He's, he's, he's a wonderful character. I had the thought that Black Phillip gives as good a performance as the dog in the thing does. Yeah, dude. They, they found <laughs> one of the many wonderful things about filmmaking is eventually you might find yourself in a situation where you have to locate a really well-trained black goat. <laughs> it's, it's such a specific need, but it may occur. Played by I, I, Charlie, I, by the way. When thank you, Charlie, for that wonderful <laughs> performance. I, I mean, fucking on death metal, I had to find a black rat, and I had to drive down to Canton, Ohio, to get this black rat. And it was a feeder rat, and it was the only black rat that was within an hour drive of where I was at. Uh, due to the fact that he had a specific coloration, that was the rat that was cast for this role. And it's interesting that the the kids. You know, the twins are so unctuous throughout the entire movie. In never a single scene are they given a sympathetic beat. They go from bratty kids to bratty kids who are in league with Satan. These kids need to be sucked up into a tube in Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. (laughs) The worst. They're the worst. But at the same time, do they get magical powers by Satan at the end? Do they get to taste butter and get a pretty dress and get to see the world? No. The witch just kind of lands on their little prison like a meteor and steals them away because apparently it's like Great America. If Wiley Coyote is holding up a, a yardstick and you're of this height or lower, then you just kind of get eaten by witches. And if you're a little bit taller, then you get magical powers, and that's how it works. <laughs> We've discussed the conflict throughout the film between Catherine and Thomason, and it becomes very literal and very visceral at the end of the film, where Catherine, in her mind, literally blames her daughter for everyone's death and is pretty much going to kill her. And Thomason has to instead defend herself and bury what's called a bill hook in the face of her mm-hmm. mother. And she hits her a few more times for good measure to, to really get her off of her. And I mean, that's inherently a incredibly disturbing beat to have happen. And it's something that's hard to motivate or logically sell. And it's 100% believable in this film that that would happen. That a daughter yeah. kills her fucking mother in hand-to-hand power combat. Of writing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, power, power of writing. Uh, have either of you guys read uh, The Art of Drag Writing by Lahus Egri? No, I have not. It's a play, playwriting book. It was assigned to me when I was in film school. But I, one of the chapters is, how do we turn a ballerina into a prostitute? We walk the character through the psychological beats that Crack. bring her from... from <laughs> Well, yeah, but uh, I, I, uh, we, we, we walk the character through the psychological beast, and it absolutely plays. And I'm, I'm not a huge fan of most of that book because it's very stage, you know, old school stage play oriented. But that particular chapter absolutely resonates in the terms of the narrative of the Vivich because we how do we take a good Christian girl and a super, super, super religious family and turn her into a witch who's a devotee of Satan? Here's how. You could call that an amazing definition of character-driven storytelling, which is just simply, you will have a story, I promise you, 
if you take a character from A to Z, if A and Z are sufficiently distant points in terms of how much this character is going to change in a radical and unexpected, like, that is a story right there. John, that's a very cogent statement. I, I absolutely agree with that. I have my I, cogent moments here and there. I, I, I don't mean to sound so surprised, I felt. It's a very strong and cogent statement. Let me offer you guys another thought. The difference between what might be considered art house horror and uh, perhaps broader horror is how often the deaths occur. For instance, if you were to take a slasher film or a Saw movie, let's just say, we need the character to die, preferably in the opening scene. And every so often minutes throughout, there are deaths throughout. And in an art house movie, in a more high-minded horror movie, the majority of the deaths occur within a really contained temporal beat near the end in which everyone just kind of kills each other. Well, it's kind of uh, like the, the tension of the film has all been building and building and building, and that's actually what the audience for that type of film wants. And then you have this huge cathartic eruption at the end of the film that releases all of that tension in a really big sure. way, as opposed to the other model, which is, you know, you want to just release these little tension bubbles every couple of minutes because otherwise people get bored. I think that's why some people look at a film of this nature and they go, Ooh, it's really slow burn or it's really boring and da 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 And it's like, no, it's just a horror movie that's on a different model. Well, you have the patience for the slow build. Like, you're, you're actually enjoying the build-up. Speaking as a guy who's one-third of a long-running podcast about the Friday the 13th movies, I'm not going to disparage the idea Something. of killing a character every several minutes. And the witch is the opposite end of that. What is this witch that you speak of? I don't know that film. I think, John, the other thing, too, that, and this just refers back to the, the Anthony Lane thing that I was saying, but I think that that is emblematic of the larger critical view of horror films. And something that I loved about this film and speaking about the ending, and, and some of it has to do with the with the mother, but more largely the when she confronts Black Phillip, and we really have our supernatural suspicions about the film confirmed. And I think we've had them confirmed before that because of the stuff with Caleb in the woods. And there's a couple of scenes that, that seem to confirm the supernatural aspects of it. But I love that the ending leaves no ambiguity about it. She is not crazy. Thomason, this is not a psychological thriller. This is a horror movie. It takes right. a stand. It takes a stand. It takes a, it takes a bold stand at the end, and it, maybe it works and maybe it doesn't. And I need, I think I feel like I need to watch it a couple more times mm -hmm. uh, because much like it, the closing image of people floating in the air, I'm not quite sure how I felt about it, but it is it is definitive. They say, you know, it, they, there there is no uh, question what type of movie they set out to make. And that's going to be divisive. That's going to be yeah, divisive yeah, with audiences yeah. and critics. I, you know, yeah, there is such a thing as a movie that it's is a little fast food. Like you, you watch it the once and you get what it's going to offer, and then you're just kind of done with it. The vastly opposite end of the spectrum is a movie that you watch only the once because it's such a tough watch. I'm talking about like say 
Schindler's List or Requiem Girl for X. a Dream. We I gl- watch Requiem for a Dream every other Tuesday, guys. <laughs> yeah, because that's exactly who you are. Vic, if, thing if, Molly and I do. It's, it's kind of our thing. Like, as it's as three, it's it's eight o'clock. It's time to watch Requiem for a Dream. Uh, if you did but, that, I would literally think that you needed psychological psychiatric yeah. help because that's but, how yeah, bad that that twisted that that movie is. You have very very tough watches. Come and see Schindler's List. Martyrs. Martyrs I've seen like maybe three times. What? (laughs) I love it. You sick twist. It's like, yeah, it's like Irreversible is one. You watch watch it once, you go, okay, I'm glad that I've watched it, but I'm never going to watch that again because it's not a fun watch. But there are movies like The Vich that exist within the gray area of that spectrum where it's a little tough, it's a little fun, and you're gonna actually get more out of it if you watch it several times, if you watch it two or three times. And interestingly enough, I, I think that that's the commonality of the films that we're talking about. It follows the Vivich. Don't Babadook. say it. Don't say it. No, it's Babadook. not the Babadook. I don't want to see the Babadook again. I. It's. It's. See, we'll have to have that conversation. But like, Babadook. I don't enjoy Babadook. <laughs> I don't enjoy watching like I don't get pleasure in watching that film. I think this film is one where I'm like, yeah, I, I'd put this on again anytime, you know, because as dark as it is, as unpleasant mm-hmm. as it is in, in a lot of ways, like it's something that I don't I don't think that I would get sick of it or it's not a chore to watch and it's not like so grindingly unpleasant that mm-hmm. like you're you're like it's a honestly it's a beautiful film on many levels it's yeah. beautifully shot the music the texture sure. you know the as as ugly as some imagery is like it's, it's Are you talking about Baba, Baba no Duke i'm not the, talking the about the fucking babadook i don't there's nothing beautiful in that in that movie you're talking about the vivich yeah the, okay vivich Jesus Christ. Uh, uh, Shining and Exorcist are both very, very difficult watches in their own way. But I have watched both those movies dozens of times because I find something new in every viewing. It's never a comfort food watch in the same way that, like, say, Robocop or fucking uh, Big Lebowski is. But it's not entirely clear what this movie is trying to say to us or what we're supposed to take away. And I think that's part of the appeal or the lure or the mystery of future interpretation. There's so many angles that you can view mm-hmm. this film from that would be, oh, I'm going to watch it this time kind of looking at that. And that might, sure. whatever that aspect might be. And it, it would be an interesting experience. So th- that's just the sign of a really rich and multi-leveled film. There are a lot of horror movies that are out there that are basically like a fast food burger. You walk in, you look up at the sign that has a picture of a hamburger, and there's a word above it that says hamburger. And you order it, and you get a hamburger, and you pull it out, and you eat the hamburger, and you go, oh, that tastes like hamburger, and we're done. That has a value to it. There's nothing wrong with that. But... The Vivich is where we tread into art. And art is a little bit of a, a, a naughty word, I guess, in, in some circles. But it's it's where we get into the finer slicing of human experience. 
and it's only when we're talking about human experience that we are actually engaging in art. And we're having a conversation worth having, one, one could argue. Well, I just want to say, I think this movie is quite clearly uh, saying, I think the message is, is very clear and direct, that, that one should never, under any circumstances, own a goat. <laughs> <laughs> but they're very friendly, Vic. Well, yes, until you get one that is literally the devil incarnate. And then Vic, it, it possesses your children... And your wife, and then it impales you, and yeah, it just it gets ugly. By the way, the only character who gets directly fucking murdered by Satan, William. Yeah. The witch kills the baby. Black Phillip is either Satan or a familiar with Satan. He jams his horns into his gut and kills him. All the other characters just kind of kill each other. Or Which was the, the other bench. Thoroughly shocking scene, by the way. Final thoughts are I, I have two that I wanted that I want to leave our loving audience with. Uh, the first is that I just want to point out on IMDb the actress who played the older witch because the younger witch was a lovely again literally a uh, Victoria's Secret model named Sarah Stevens, but the older horrific witch is is named Bathsheba Garnett, and I <laughs> oh just oh my god like it couldn't be more per- they did no disrespect to this woman again I'm sure she's a wonderful actress and it was a mm. terrifying performance but. Really, Bathsheba? <laughs> uh, it, it, if you're going to get your palm or tarot read by anybody in the entire world, you want it to be done by a woman named Bathsheba. In 1996, she played the old crone in a Goosebumps TV series episode. So, Holy shit. Uh, yeah, I'm going to see that. Really kind of typecast. Mm-hmm. But she doesn't want her age on IMDb, apparently. Yeah, <laughs> we need a crone in here. Get the crone. But she's great. When she shows up, she's fucking amazing. She's well, great. and that's that's the other thing I I really do want to say is that I know uh, obviously Anya Taylor Joy has gone on to do Split and and which was enormously successful and she was very good and I think she's going to be a big star. And just because again I I'm still unpacking my feelings about this whole thing and trying to get my head around. Uh, a lot of the thematic qualities and everything else, but what one of the things I was struck by from beginning to end that we didn't really talk about much, the performances by absolutely everyone from the the twins to the, the mother and Caleb. Uh, I mean, Caleb's death scene is fantastic. Uh, Ralph Innocent, I guess, plays uh, the father, William. Fucking brilliant. Not a, not mm-hmm. a person you've heard of among them in Every one of them is simply top-notch with very difficult dialogue, very difficult performances. Every every one of them hits it out of the park. It's just astonishing. Uh, Vic, Vic, you're plugging into something that I very, very much uh, not only agree with and believe in. There are a lot of great fucking actors whose names you haven't heard yet. Yep. And if you dig a little bit, you're going to find them. You don't need movie stars to make a movie star level quality performance film. Absolutely true. And I think that we would, we might actually, you know, God willing, five years, 10 years from now, I want to do this podcast again. And this time we will have looked at all of the Blu-ray features and read the the reams of commentary and thought about this film and seeing where these actors go from here and we'll have a whole other perspective on it. But I think that I like that this, you know, I'm glad that we ended up calling out them by name and, you know, uh, getting a little more specific, 
but I think that this podcast comes from the pot, you know, the perspective of this movie more or less just came out and we're reacting to it, you know, purely from our reading of it. But I think this is a film that in the future, uh, there will be much, much more insight into it. And I look forward to, to gaining that insight and, and thinking about it. So gentlemen, it's been a, a great pleasure. Um, Let's uh, let's do this again soon. Um, I know everyone listening. It's we've been sporadic, and uh, we apologize for that. But uh, you know, hopefully, I I do not apologize, John. Do not apologize. <laughs> <laughs> we're we sh- yeah, we're shameless. Uh, uh, we're shameless. So thanks for sticking with oh. us. So hope you all enjoy. No! <laughs> <laughs> Hope y'all enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> Adios. <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for sticking with us, everybody. And uh, we'll be back soon.